I wanted to talk a little bit about randomized control trials in cancer medicine. This is getting back to my roots a little bit. And this is based on things I've been seeing and reading online, things I've been hearing, things that have been written in academic medical journals. There are a lot of misconceptions about randomized control trials in cancer medicine, drug approval. I'm getting a little sick of what I'm hearing. And the FDA is trying to lower the bar further. They're saying we need more accelerated approvals. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Just what we didn't need from this FDA that has set the bar so low. We used to trip over it, but now no longer. It's just firmly on the floor. That's where the bar is. So let's talk about randomized control trials first. Is it hard to do a randomized control trial? The answer is absolutely yes. We have to start by acknowledging it's very difficult. It's often costly. It's very tedious. There's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of naysayers along the way, a lot of veto powers along the way. It's very hard to do a randomized control trial. So credit where credit is due when people do one. Yes, good for you. You did a randomized trial. Good for you. But you overcame a lot of things. That's good. But you have ethical and moral duty to a lot of people and a lot of constituents. So we're going to talk about that. But is it hard to do? Yes, it's hard to do. Now, is it costly? Well, sometimes it's costly. It's costly when you create a bureaucracy around it, a huge and overwhelming bureaucracy around it. But sometimes it's not costly. For instance, they did a randomized control trial called TASTE in the Netherlands. It was done for $50 per participant. They built a registry-based randomized trial. It's not an observational study. It's a registry-based randomized trial. It didn't cost $20,000 or $30,000 per person. It cost $50. That's because they invested in a system. They were able to get it done. So just like when you fly United Airlines and the seats are packed in so tight, you can barely breathe before you, you, you bump into the seat in front of you. Um, you can, you can just as they don't have to put the seat so close, just as the seat distance is not a property of the airplane, the cost of the randomized trial is not a cost of randomization. It's a cost of the bureaucracy we've inserted around it. Around it. And we can do away with a lot of that. So yes, RCTs are hard to do. Um, I give you credit for doing them, but that's not an excuse for doing unethic, unethical, terrible ones. Next do you have to run a randomized control trial to criticize it? Well, I don't know. Have you ever been to a restaurant and had thoughts about the food? Did you ever run a restaurant? No. Have you ever watched a movie and thought to yourself, this movie's awful, and you told people this movie's awful? And did you ever make a movie? I'm sure that the people who made awful movies found it hard and costly and tedious to make uh, those movies. Sure, I'm sure they did, but that was no excuse for running for making a shitty movie that nobody wanted to watch. And similarly, it's no excuse for an unethical, flawed, random randomized control trial. So those are my initial thoughts. Yes, credit where credit is due. It takes a lot of work and perseverance to do it. Yes, there have been many, many important hallmark randomized control trials that are wonderful. And there are people who've done it against all odds who are truly heroes. The trials I think of right off the top of my head, Bernie Fisher, the two studies showing mastectomy and lumpectomy, brilliant studies. Um, Daryl Francis and Orbita, brilliant study, you know, brilliant study. Um, uh, uh, CAST, brilliant study. Women's Health Initiative, brilliant study. Um, nice Sugar, the replication of early gold, uh, the replication of uh, tight glycemic control in the ICU, great study. You know, so many great studies, even the original COVID vaccine trial. We're going to talk about that. That's a pretty reasonable and well-done study. Um, so you don't have to run one to criticize it just like you don't have to make movies to know one sucks, and uh, it is hard to do, so they get credit, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that everything they do is great. Funding source. Randomized control trials can be funded by the industry. In fact, in oncology, I would say empirical data shows the majority are funded by the industry. About 90% are funded by the industry. They are funded by the industry 
um, with the goal of advancing their industry products uh, into greater and greater market share so the industry earns more money. A secondary goal is to make people live longer, live better. The purpose of drug regulation is to align those two goals so that living longer, living better is the thing that earns you the money. And the places where it deviates are the places where randomized trials become unethical, unjust, corrupt, flawed, problematic, and those are the places that warrant harsh criticism. And if we don't give it harsh criticism, then the industry will perpetuate these flawed studies for another decade and another generation of cancer patients will suffer. And these trials that are unethical need to be halted and they need to be fixed. They cannot be allowed to continue. So that's my thoughts on industry. There are also non-conflicted groups that run randomized control trials. Some of them directly run by uh, governments around the world, by EORTC, by uh, the NIH cooperative groups. These are all ways in which non-conflicted public payers, for the most part, take their money and pass it through intermediary organizations to run randomized trials. These trials are often done to look at different strategies, two different treatment strategies, sort of broader philosophical questions in the space. Um, they often are well done, and they're often trying to not necessarily advance any particular company's market share, but answer a really scientifically meaningful question. But at the same time, they too can be corrupt and perverted by, uh, by different interests, including the, the major goal, which is to always claim discovery and significance, which is a goal that looms over our shoulder, but also the fact that, you know, in this modern world, if you want to run a cooperative group study, you often need the industry to play ball. They need to give you their drug for free because you can't afford to buy it for your trial or you don't want to dare do it without their free drug because it'll make it a lot easier. And so you need their blessing. And with their blessing comes their oversight and their interpretation. And so some non-conflicted randomized control trials are really giveaways to the industry. I'll give you one example. There's an ongoing study by the Southwest Cooperative Group, Southwest Oncology Group, that's randomizing people to AAVD versus a nivolumab VD. Well, that's an interesting randomized control trial when the standard of care is ABVD. And actually, AAVD in the Echelon 1 study, the only reason people think it's better than ABVD, which is far, far cheaper, is that AAVD achieved an increase in modified progression-free survival, which is the primary endpoint of the study. That's a very dubious primary endpoint. It later achieved an improvement in progression-free survival, but that's not the primary endpoint of the study. And so that introduces all the caveats and nuances that come with selectively focusing on secondary endpoints. And by making a cooperative group study incorporate AAVD as the standard of care for the control arm, they have tacitly given Seattle Genetics a boost. They basically endorse Seattle Genetics as the standard of care. That was inappropriate for the cooperative group to do. It was foolish, it was an error, and they should have really had ABVD be the control arm, which is still what I think the majority of oncologists practice with because the company hasn't yet persuaded us. And of course, there's no overall survival benefit, by the way. Overall survival, of course, is one of the two most important endpoints in cancer medicine. There's living longer and living better. Those are the two important endpoints, overall survival and health-related quality of life. Let's never forget that. Progression-free survival, modified PFS, all these sorts of things, they are stand-ins for living longer, living better. They're not direct measures of that, and they never will be, because if you understand how they're measured, they will always be arbitrary and capricious surrogates. Okay, so those are some thoughts on funding source, things I hear. I hear that randomized control trials have purposes, um, and they do have purposes, and some of those purposes are company needs to get their new drug approved. Well, generally, a company approaches this question in the following manner. If it is feasible and possible for the company to get their drug approved with a single agent response rate, showing that the drug shrinks tumors more than 30% or more, the definition of partial response, and that that shrinkage is durable, the duration of response, then the company will pursue approval based on an improvement based on that single agent response rate. If the, if the drug has a weak or modest single agent activity, by the way, this is activity, it's not efficacy, it's not a measure of living longer or living better, it's a measure of drug activity. And if the company 
uh, finds that it's not so great at that, then they'll typically run a randomized control trial, often with a weak comparator in the last line setting, looking at something like PFS, which is another surrogate endpoint, which you can look on this channel. Go to my prior videos, look at that three-part lecture series. I think part two, I break down what is PFS. So they often do that. And then the other thing is if the response rate is really, really low, then sometimes they do a randomized trial against best supportive care in the last line setting and try to get, eke out an OS benefit, something like that, as they did with uh, rigorafenib and colon and Wonsurf uh, um, and colon and, uh, and uh, remucirumab and second line HCC and a number of other things like that. Okay. Um, so that's really kind of how they think about getting the drug approved. Um, new indication. Well, if the drug did get initially approved based on an uncontrolled study, they try to move it forward a line of therapy, typically the second line or sometimes all the way to the front, and they do so with another randomized control trial. And if they do that, if they've already established their drug as a salvage drug and doctors start using it in the salvage setting, they really need to ensure that when the control arm patients progress that they eventually have access to that drug because what they need to answer is whether or not the routine upfront application of their medication is superior to the eventual receipt of their medication in a subset of patients. They almost never do this. I mean, we've documented this problem, issues of crossover, uh, in a paper by Allison Haslam, initially the Annals of Oncology. We outlined this, this thinking. We've also documented it in a paper on core limitations, limitations in cancer clinical trials by Talal Hilal and myself um, in JAMA Internal Medicine, I believe is the reference for that. What's the best treatment? You know, every once in a while we get a true comparative effectiveness study. They often have big pitfalls. Uh, I think about exitinib versus serafinib in second line uh, kidney cancer, which we talked about in a study on oral anti-cancer drug dosing in the JCO. Um, and sometimes they're strategic. They're asking a question, does the routine use of some test um, or some strategy confer benefit. For instance, the classic, um, if you have a woman and you treat her, is it better to follow the CA-125 or just to do radiographic follow-up? And it turned out that by checking a CA-125, you are much more likely to diagnose cancer sooner, but you didn't necessarily improve survival or quality of life. And in fact, you just gave them more treatment. This is a uh, Lancet paper. Um, but the key point here is, no matter what your goal, all your trials have to be ethical. They have to be ethical. And what does it mean to be ethical? It means you need to randomize people to placebo if and only if the best available, best known, and current standard of care is placebo. Otherwise, you can't do placebo-controlled randomized trials. I'm sorry, it would be unethical. Just like you can't randomize someone to the control arm of pushing them off a cliff. You wouldn't harm your control arm. But of course, if you randomize someone to one arm push off the cliff, whatever you do in the other arm is going to win because this is actually harmful. And also, if the standard of care is to give them some life-prolonging medication, if you deprive them of that, you're essentially pushing someone off the cliff because if they weren't in the study, you would have given them that medicine that would have extended their survival, and you're depriving them of that. So you are actively harming them. You're harming them more than what would happen to them if they weren't on your study. You can't harm your control arm. So that means the control arm is the best available standard of care. When there is no standard of care and nothing has ever worked, placebo is acceptable. So placebo was acceptable, in my opinion, in the SHARP study, serafinib versus placebo in HCC, the initial 2007 study, because there was no proven drug in HCC that had a life-prolonging benefit. But doxorubicin was really the de facto standard of care, and so if I were pretty vocal back in that day, I would have argued that physicians should have the choice to administer doxorubicin to the patients in that study. Or I would have demanded that the manufacturer do a third arm with doxorubicin just to show that, uh, uh, one, it will protect the placebo arm because if it starts doing worse than doxorubicin, they can halt the placebo arm and give everyone doxorubicin. And two, it would really ask if serafinib better than the current standard of care. So that's something that we could debate. Um, placebo is 
reasonable in some last line settings, but uh, not many in oncology because in the absence of um, giving somebody, say, ramucirumab, you might just give them 5-FU again. And so the control arm should might be investigator choice, but a free and unfettered choice, as my friend Timothy Olivier says. And you should check out Timothy's paper on uh, investigator choice, which appeared as a research letter in, if I recall, Gemma Network Open just this last year. So the control arm has to be the best available care that you would do for somebody if you didn't enroll them in the study. It can't be worse than what you would do, and that's an important point. So let's give you some examples. The Shas 3 study. This is an example where the control arm was doing nothing, but I think it was actually justifiable. Um, in the United States, we have the Papanicolaus smear, the pap smear, which is used to screen for cervical cancer. A research team in uh, Mumbai looked at the slums of Mumbai. They noticed that women were dying of cervical cancer in high numbers. Uh, there was no pap smear, and apparently pap smears uh, were too expensive to be performed in that group. That was a political decision. Um, and so they were getting nothing. And they did a randomized control trial of a visual inspection of the cervix and acetic acid treatment and uh, uh, versus nothing. And they followed women to see if they could avert cervical cancer death. Lo and behold, they did. And they had a uh, improvement in mortality, cervical cancer mortality in that study, which led to a new standard of care. And the nice thing about acetic acid is it's very cheap and scalable and feasible. And so by doing this study, they have a low-cost um, intervention that they can immediately deploy. So in that case, because the standard of care in that area was uh, no effective therapy, and because the thing they were testing was something that were it to be successful, it could be deployed, those two things conferred the ethical prerequisite to do such a study, and so I have no objections there. Um, but if the intervention arm wasn't the acetic acid, but rather um, uh, a novel uh, 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 iPhone uh, uh, tool that you screw into the iPhone that can help the iPhone. Um, and then once the trial was successful, uh, they left India, and then they never brought that iPhone there because people couldn't afford an iPhone, um, and they couldn't afford this thing you're screwing on the top, then I would say it is unethical because you were exploiting that population for something that you wanted to sell and market in a Western nation. So I think that's another salient difference. Let's talk about the COVID randomized control trial. And by the way, I've written a paper on this. It's called The Ethics of Randomized Control Trials in Low- and Middle-Income Countries with Sean Mylan Cody um, and Dr. Kumar, which appears in the Journal of Global Oncology maybe 10 years ago by this time, 10 years old. Let's talk about the COVID randomized control trials. When they did a randomized control trial of vaccination for SARS-CoV-2, the control arm was, of course, a placebo vaccine. Um, is that ethical? Well, of course, the answer was yes, it is ethical because there was no known injection or pill that could prevent you from getting SARS-CoV-2. And so the best available therapy we had was literally nothing. So we could test our new vaccine that we didn't know if it worked or not against the best available care, which is doing nothing. But for instance, if you were to start to run a randomized control trial today, um, and even if it was in a global setting where they don't have access to MAC vaccines, I think at this point, 2022, probably placebo control is unethical. The control arm should at least get a globally affordable um, uh, draw, uh, uh, vaccine, such as um, many of the vaccines made in India or the AstraZeneca vaccine. You know, these are vaccines that are available. So I think that should be the control arm there. And then if you want, you don't have to prove superiority. You can prove non-inferiority. So this is another point people make. We had to use a crappy control arm, so we have many options. But you can do many options with a non-inferiority randomized control trial with a very tight margin that would also be convincing to regulators that this new option is just as good as the old option. And the nice thing about that is you don't have to commit an act that is unethical and egregious by depriving the control arm of a proven standard of care. Okay, cancer randomized control trials. Let's talk about a few. POLO. POLO is a trial of um, BRCA mutant 
uh, pancreas cancer um, a germline, and uh, after patients received four months of the standard of care, full furinox, they were randomized three to two to Olaparib, new costly $12,000 a month medicine, or placebo, sugar pill. Um, is placebo the control, acceptable control arm in that situation? Answer is not so. Incorrect. Uh, no one would take somebody who was responding to or had stable disease on platinum and deprive them of further platinum. You would continue it for at least, I think, six months, and then you would omit the platinum and continue, I think, the 5-FU indefinitely. Or some people might just press on with the fulfurinox entirely if they believe that... Um, that uh, the patient is manageable toxicities, and it might be the case in some people. So that control arm of the polo trial was unethical. Um, well, you could say, well, some places can't afford to keep people on this forever. I would question that, that some place can afford to start full furinox, but after you know four months, they just can't afford any more of it. I would, I would doubt your premise. But even if that were to be true, um, if you go to a place that cannot afford more than four months of full furinox, how the hell are they going to afford the Olaparib if you are successful? They're not going to be able to afford a $12,000 a month medication called Olaparib. So that trial would be unethical because it would just, I think, exploit the people in that country. And this is also covered in our JGO paper, The Ethics of Clinical Trials in Low- and Middle-Income Countries. So that's a terrible, terrible study. The Boston trial. Horrific study. It's a trial of Selenexer, Velcade-Dex. Selenexer, of course, terrible drug. Uh, Velcade-Dex versus Velcade-Dex. Some in people, some of whom have just progressed on Velcade. This is a second line and beyond multiple myeloma randomized control trial. Velcade-Dex was not the acceptable standard of care in at the time that trial was run. Um, it's called Boston, but no self-respecting investigator in Boston would ever want to accrue a patient from Boston in that study. It's a deeply unethical and flawed study. And so it should be halted. It should have been halted by the IRB. It should have been halted by the regulators. It should have been halted by every individual who ever put a patient on that trial. You can't go to a patient on the control arm of that study in your clinic and say, listen, there's this new randomized control trial. You got a 50% chance of getting a new drug we don't know much about, Selenexor. But you also got a 50% chance of getting a lousy, inferior treatment that's worse than the standard of care. The control arm is a form of pushing someone and harming them because it's beneath what you would otherwise do, which would be a triplet at the time of this study. Um, some people say, well, the FDA compelled us to use this control arm. No, they didn't. They didn't compel you to use a flawed, unethical control arm. Worst case scenario, if they wanted that comparison, you could have had a third arm of actually being the prevailing standard of care. Second of all, no one has ever stopped anyone from running the ethical and correct study and then submitting it and pushing and pushing on FDA. If you can truly beat a, a, a control arm with more drugs in it, uh, I doubt the FDA will stand in your way. By the way, their bar is on the toilet. I don't think they're going to uh, complain if the control arm was too strong and you beat it nonetheless. Um, they have, as far as I can tell, no standards anymore. They're approving fourth doses based on nothing, based on what Israel has written in crayon on a napkin. I mean, that's really the level of evidence here, some observational garbage study from Israel, and that's for a mass vaccination campaign. So you think they're going to give you a, give you a hard time if you did an ethical control arm? No, that's not the case. Sorry to say, that's another excuse. Companies point their finger at the FDA after you point their finger at the companies. Uh, the truth is you're both failing, and anyone who signs on to that study is complicit in an ethical uh, violation. And you may not think it looks so bad now, but it will look bad in the future, just like things that look, didn't look bad in the past look bad in the future. It will look very bad, but the difference will be there'll be a record of people pointing out at the time you did the study that it was unethical, and that record will be me. So I've been saying it for a while now. Speed of approval. 
I hear people say that if you do a randomized controlled trial in the last line and say multiple myeloma, you will have to wait so long and people will die in the interim while you wait for those results. So instead, you do an uncontrolled phase two study, document a response rate, which is a 15% or more reduction in the paraprotein, and then among those people who responded, wait to see the median duration of response to ensure it's durable. Use that as the basis of a regulatory approval, the combination of response rate and median DOR, and speed the approval, and then run the randomized trial in the background, you know, and then take your time for that. Here's the problem with that. We've studied this claim, and you think, you're saying, you're asserting that it actually takes longer to do the randomized trial than to do an uncontrolled cohort study, wait for responders, and then measure DOR, but it actually doesn't. It doesn't take any more time at all. It takes the exact same amount of time. This is a study by Emerson Chen and myself in JAMA Internal Medicine, estimation of study time results. See, what you don't see is that in a randomized trial, you don't get everyone on day one. And in an uncontrolled study, you'll load everyone on day one. In a randomized trial, as you start randomizing, you're constantly assessing for the signal as time goes on. At any moment in time, you could find that signal. You could have interim looks. You could look early after 100 events or whatever number of events you want and stop it the moment you get an OS signal. In the uncontrolled study, you have to first get so many people in it that you get a robust estimate of the response rate. So you need to get the last person on drug, treat them for several weeks until you can see if they respond or not. Once you figure out your fraction of responders, 40%, you got to keep watching these people until you see the median duration of response. So you have to wait both for the response and then for the median DOR. And actually, at a trial level, not an individual patient level, let me make this point. People confuse the two things in their brains. They think individual patient experience is the same thing as aggregate trial experience. It ain't the same thing at all, a very different thing. Individual patients respond, then they progress, then they die, typically, typically. But in an aggregate trial, to get an aggregate response rate, that might even take longer than an OS readout against the prevailing standard of care if the new drug is really good because it takes a long time to get those last people in to really solidify your response rate. But worse than that, you don't just need the response rate. You need the median DOR, the median duration of response among the responders. So once you have created your sub-cohort of responders, you have to follow them to find the median DOR, at least know, or at least know it ain't coming too quick. That takes even more time. And if you look at this in a meta-regression approach, which is what Emerson Chen and I did in that paper, you will find there is no time savings in the last line. You're just saying something you heard, but you never really thought about it. What we did, we thought about it a lot. We thought about it way more, and we did meta-regression to kind of test these hypotheses. That's the difference. That's the difference between the person who makes the movie, the person who watched the movie. We were watching a lot of movies here. We're not just somebody making the movie. Maybe just delivering sandwiches to the set. We're watching a lot of movies here. We're a student of film here. We're a student of film. We're a film critic here. We're Gene Siskel here, okay? That's the difference between who can comment. All right. It's a joke. Um, okay. We can't do a randomized trial for everything. Of course. It's totally true. You don't have a randomized trial for just everything. Start writing down things you do from the way when you wake up. You wake up. You rub your eyes. Never had a randomized trial rubbing your eyes. But you do it. You brush your teeth. Never had a randomized trial brushing your teeth. Yeah. You put on clothes. Okay. You get a coffee. No randomized trial of coffee. In fact, it's the most disputed thing on earth. But let me tell you, if you don't give me that coffee, there's going to be hell to pay. In fact, don't even talk to me. Don't even talk to me until it's at least three quarters of the cup is done. We can't do a randomized trial for everything. Same in biomedicine. The majority of decisions are not based on randomized trials. But, 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 they serve an important purpose. One, to demonstrate the fundamental efficacy of products. 
You need a study to demonstrate that under some circumstances, this thing actually works. That's the thing that separates real medicine from witchcraft, sorcery, and prayer, and hope, and all that other nonsense, bad medicine. It's all separated by a fundamental study that proves under some circumstances it works. And by works, I mean improves or an outcome that people actually care about. And by works, I mean in some cohort. Now, does that mean it will work in somebody who's older and frailer and sicker? Maybe not. Maybe it'll have a smaller effect size that tends to be the rule in cancer medicine. Maybe it won't work at all in, in costs and toxicities outweigh benefit, sure. But if you never establish that it works under any circumstances, you can't even start to ask the question under what circumstances it loses the effect. Okay, so you have to document fundamental efficacy. Do I know the fundamental efficacy of Olaparib and germline mutant pancreas cancer? I don't. I really don't know the fun because it just improved PFS. I don't know if I had, like, if I lived in a world without that drug for that tumor, I have no idea if people would live longer, live better. And that's a total failure of the polo trial. It's a lousy endpoint. It's an unethical control arm. I just don't have proof of fundamental efficacy in any cohort, let alone ask the question, does it work in my old, frail patients? Next point. Patients on clinical trials look different than patients in the real world. Yeah, of course they do. But that's not a fault of randomization. Lord randomized it and come down and say you can only enroll the healthy people on this study. No, you chose to do that. You chose to do that because you wanted to get your drug products to market. And you were happy to play by different rules and bend the rules to favor the company. But if you were a really ethical researcher, you would have enrolled anybody and have really pragmatic trials and really try to answer the question of what's best for the average person in your clinic. You're not If you really didn't care about the corporate interests and we need a regulatory system that actually pushes these companies to do the trials for average Americans, not just for a select group of Americans and not just so that you can get an authorship and they can get a billion dollars. That's not what we need. So we need randomized trials for fundamental efficacy. Then we need randomized trials for strategy. Strategy. Does anyone actually know which line you're supposed to give daratumumab? Does anyone know how long you should give daratumumab? We've had Dozens of randomized trials of daratumumab. Nobody even knows the fundamental questions. Do you give it in the second line, the third line, the first line? Do you give it forever? Do you stop it? Do you give it on maintenance? Do you need the maintenance? Do you need the maintenance? Everybody. Nobody has any idea of fundamental questions. I mean, we are currently in the mantra that triplet, triplet, triplet is best. We really, if you really probed that evidence base, it's a lot weaker than you think. It's weaker than you think because these trials didn't have proper post-protocol care and the control arms of many, many studies. So it's an evidence-based myth built from a thousand randomized control trials, as a wise man once wrote. We need trials of strategy, strategy, like is it better to do s drugs in sequence or combos? Classic, you know, the adriamycin taxane versus taxane versus adriamycin three-arm cooperative group study by Sledge and colleagues in the JCO from 19 Diggity. That's a classic study that showed that the combination could induce a deeper response, have a longer time to progression, but not yield increased overall survival benefits. You need randomized trials of strategy, strategy, and those are often done by non-conflicted groups. And that's what the cooperative groups should be focusing on. They shouldn't be giving Seattle, Genet Seattle Genetics a free blank check. Okay. Older, sicker patients I think I've talked about. So what are my thoughts here? Yes, we live in a world where companies are trying to do the least amount to get the most amount of money. Of course, that's true. And yes, we live in a world that a lot of people who came before you saw problems and they put a rule in place, which is what people do in medicine. When they see something go wrong, they create a universal rule that probably doesn't fix the problem and just makes everyone else pissed off. That's what we do in medicine, okay? Randomized trials aren't, are, are not easy to do, and it's a lot to do one, sure. And we don't have, and there's not a huge budget for it. But here are the fixes. One, you got to demand more money for these studies. Okay, we're spending a trillion dollars or more on healthcare at an aggregate level for the majority, not the majority, but for a fraction, perhaps 30, 40% of healthcare. You don't really know if that spending is actually improving outcomes. Is that what a sensible, intelligent, 
nation would do? No, they would do a series of studies to sort out the, the wheat from the chaff to figure out what actually works or not. We need a federal randomized trial budget run by non-conflicted investigators of roughly 5% of CMS Medicare spending. I think that's simple fix. That will be a lot more than now. We have to have it run by truly non-conflicted people, people with methodologic expertise. They can, of course, be impacted by experts in the disease type, but you need methodologists to run these things because people who are not methodologists who don't know about censoring and things like that, they just don't often understand the difference between individual experience and aggregate trial-level experience. So you really need methodologists to design these things. And there's a really great paper by Peter Gucha and colleagues in uh, BMJ about that. I won't belabor that point. But anyway, we can agree. If you, don't wanna, if you wanna push me back on that, we can at least agree at least give me, that we should be spending more on these kinds of studies. They're very important. One, uh, one good analysis of Tamiflu would have saved global budgets $20 billion. And one good randomized trial of a fourth dose could save this nation a billion or more dollars from Pfizer if we had a good randomized trial. Pfizer's got 100 bills in the bank from their drugs. I haven't seen a randomized trial showing me that Paxlovid works in vaccinated people. I've yet to see that. See, is, is that too much to ask? That we actually have some data before you give them five more billion dollars? Or should I just give my... Should I just cut my check for my, uh, for my uh, taxes straight to Borla? Is that what you want instead? Okay. So we need to fund that. Two, randomized trials. Every single one has to be ethical. It doesn't matter what your goal is. Your goal is to get the drug on market. Your goal is to do this. Your goal is to actually answer questions. They all have to be ethical. That means there's some things you can't do. You can't punch the control arm in the face. You can't push them off a cliff. You can't shoot them. And you can't give them a placebo if there is a standard of care that is a proven life-prolonging drug. Otherwise, you are depriving somebody of life. You're doing the same thing as pushing them off a cliff. You cannot do that under any circumstances. That's always unethical, okay? You can't give them subpart therapy. At a minimum, I think as a compromise, somebody might say, you could do it if they consented to it. But I don't think any of these people are telling them that, that oh, well, there's a 50% chance you're going to get something that's really, really bad, and I wouldn't want, I wouldn't wish it upon my own mother. You know, I don't think they're doing that. And so I think these are flawed studies. They all need to be pulled. They need to be pulled. The IRB, they don't have the experience and technical things to pull it. I think the investigators are the ones who have to pull it, but they are, of course, happy to go along for the ride, and they're, you know, they're a race to the bottom because it's whoever's the lowest bidder. Whoever you know, will do the trial will get the credit. Um, but Mani Moyudin published a paper on unethical control trials in multiple myeloma, and he found that uh, in a good chunk of the cases, the, the control arm that was known to be inferior had the, was was proven to be inferior in a trial with overlapping authors. It's the same authors. So they can't say we didn't know about the other trial because it's your name on both papers, buddy. You're on both papers. You got to have known what they were doing there and you got to have known it's an ethical trial here. And the solution, if you want a lot of drugs for the same purpose on market for competition, and I, I don't know why you would because it never lowers cost anyway, actually. There's never been an example of branded, branded competition in cancer drug that actually substantively lowered prices. Okay, fine. But if you want a lot, if you want a competition, you can do non-inferiority studies if you so want. But I'll tell you something about non-inferiority studies. If the improvement of a drug like, say, serafinib in liver cancer is 2.7 months and sharp, and you do a non-inferiority study of linvantinib with an upper bound hazard ratio of 1.08, if I recall correctly, um, how much OS are you left with in your pocket, okay, when you're willing to tolerate something worse than 2.7 months? Ask yourself that, okay? So I think we need to be in the superiority business until we're in the cure business. Then once we're in the cure business, we can be in the non-inferiority with improved side effect business. But as long as we're in the two-month survival business, which is what the business we're in, we need to be in the superiority business and not in the non-inferiority business. We don't need to be in the more options business. We need to be in the good options business, okay? That's simple. Simple stuff, people. Okay, so those are my thoughts. 
randomized control trials in cancer medicine. It's horrific. The state of the science right now is bad. I mean, you should read my book, Malignant. It documents this problem at every single level possible. It explains what the surrogates are. It unpacks a lot, a lot of the jargon of this video that I think may be tough for a later audience. Any other thoughts? I think we have the final distinction is there's explanation and there's rationalization, okay? I have no doubt that people who have been part of the current system for many decades will always rationalize their choices and actions because everyone has an ego that says you're a good person. I mean, there's nobody who says I'm a bad person. Everyone thinks they're a good person. There's a ration. They rationalize their choices. But progress in science occurs when people try to explain choices, not rationalize choices. Ex explanations have to make sense. It doesn't make sense to me to say, the reason we're allowed this control arm is that many of the global sites we're accruing in, the reason that, that they just don't have anything to, they don't have anything better. So we can do a substandard control arm by US standards. But we have to enroll a few patients in the US because that pesky FDA really doesn't like to see a trial that's only from abroad. They like a few from here. So there's a few people in this country we're gonna have to sacrifice, okay? Okay, that, okay. But then when the trial is successful in those other countries, the new drug is so pricey that the people in those countries can never afford the drug forever. And so we're justified going again a year later and doing another lousy control. That is not, that's not an, ex, ex, that's not an acceptable system. If you are doing a trial for that country, the product, like the Shastri product, has to be something you can scale up in that country. He could have, he scaled up the uh, acetic acid screening of the cervix. He couldn't scale up hepatoglus screening, but he scaled up that. And that's why it was justified because it was for those people. It was by them for them. But, if your product is something that's for for the United States, for wealthy nations that are happy to open up their their, their wallet and just say, take all the money you want, Albert. Uh, if that's your product, then your control arm has to be at least what we're doing right now because I want to know if your new thing that you're selling me at this big price is better than what I would do. And if your control arm is polo where we're going to pull the plug on all treatment and just watch you with a sugar pill, or if your control arm is like something that we have as a preprint in Blood Advances. Is that right, Timothy? Timothy, you'll have to tell me. I believe it's out now, blood advances, and it is on uh, oral azacitidine, where in the control arm, you're allowed to increase the dose of placebo if the blasts start going up. Excuse me? Increase the dose of placebo if the blasts go up? That's not a standard maneuver. That's a deeply unethical maneuver, and no one should have allowed that to happen, okay? That's a flawed study, and if you want to sell that drug on this market, your control arm can't be pushing someone off a cliff or do doubling their placebo dose when they're blasting off. you got to give them what you would otherwise do for them. Just think to yourself, the bottom line rule would you have your own mother on that control arm? And if the answer is you would not put your mother on that control arm, you would fight for better therapy for your mother, you should not be enrolling on that trial. You hear me? You should not be enrolling on that trial. It's an unethical study. If you, it doesn't matter the purpose, getting the company. It doesn't matter if it's your own mother, and everybody should be treated like you would treat your own mother. That's the number one rule of medicine. Okay, those are my thoughts. Randomized control trials, things I've been hearing, things that are totally wrong. Totally, totally totally wrong, <laughs> totally wrong. And uh, the solution is to read the book Malignant. And uh, you really want to read this book because this is a book where I try to lay all this out. It should be all crystal clear in there. Okay, on that positive note, very unusual video. I was debating even to put it on my YouTube channel. This is certainly more plenary session content, but uh, I will put it on because you know what? You don't have to watch it. <laughs>
You don't have to listen. You don't have to watch. You don't have to learn. You can say the same wrong things. You can say, we, it would take too long to do a randomized Tron ladder line. You can keep saying that. It's totally untrue. We've proven it in a paper. You don't want to read the paper. You don't want to learn anything. But you can just keep repeating things you heard from somebody once upon a time. But if you stay this long, you might want to actually check that paper out. You might be someone open-minded. You might be willing to reconsider some of these things. So until next time.